If you're like me, the first thing you do when traveling is check out what's happening with the local food scene, right? And as I've been planning my big book tour and live podcast tapings all around the country, man, I am very excited to eat my way across the nation. There's Atlanta, there's Miami, and so many more. Going to local restaurants gives you a great taste of that place. And if you pay your bill with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum Amex, you get double miles at restaurants. Getting a taste of local food is the best way to get to know the local culture. And if you travel, you know that's how it's done. The Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Lately, I've been working on learning Spanish with Rosetta Stone. The app makes it so easy. And Rosetta Stone has the most advanced speech recognition tech built in. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Sporkful listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com sporkful today. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. And for the first time in two and a half years, we are coming to you live tonight from Swedish American Hall in San Francisco. My guest tonight has been on our show many times. In fact, if The Sporkful was a sitcom, he'd probably be our wacky neighbor. Always barging in the front door, peeking his head over the fence to answer nerdy questions about food science. Like the time he came out to demonstrate what sound scallions are supposed to make if you slice them correctly. But he's never been the featured guest of a whole episode. We've never had an extended conversation to hear the story of how he came to be the Internet's leading food science guru. He's best known as the writer behind the popular Food Lab column, which led to a best-selling cookbook of the same name. He's also the author of the children's book, Every Night is Pizza Night, and a New York Times columnist. Tonight, we're celebrating the release of his new cookbook, The Walk, Recipes and Techniques. Please welcome Kenji Lopez-Alt. Cheers. Yes. Uh, It is good to see you, Kenji. It's good to see you. How's it going? First off, how are you feeling? I mean, so this your first cookbook was a big hit. We'll talk more later about the, the, the new cookbook, but just like big picture. Is it like more pressure following up a really successful cookbook with the second one or less pressure? Because like you already nailed one. Less mainly because my... You know, when, when the first book came out, um, you know, I was a f- freelance writer and my wife was a grad student. And a lot of our, like, immediate future comforts relied on having a successful uh, cookbook. <laughs> right. um, and now, you know, now my wife has a good career. My first book was successful. So this one is like, it's okay if it doesn't do well, you know, as long right. as I... There you go. So you guys don't need to buy it, okay? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we'll, we'll talk more about the book. Uh, later, we're going to work our way there, but let's let's begin at the beginning. And I gather from your website that people are always asking you about your name. Mm-hmm. If you want, I can just field this one to save you the trouble. Sure, yeah, go um, for it. I'll tell you if you're right. <laughs> right. 
so uh, your mom's Japanese American. She came to the U.S. when she was 16. Yes. Your father's American of German descent. Yeah. They named you James Kenji Alt. Yes. You always went by Kenji. Correct. Then you married your wife, Adriana Lopez. Yes. And you guys both hyphenated your last name, yeah. Lopez Alt. Correct. And so um, you are not Latino. I'm not Latino. But in you any spend way. a lot of time in Colombia where your wife's family is from. Yeah. Okay. You've read Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Only the finest research here on the Sporkful. <laughs> so I, I know. So your parents split up when you were pretty young, and I gather that most of the food you grew up with was made by your mom. What was the role of food in your house growing up? Functional, mainly. I mean, it, you know, dinner time was always like all the kids have to be there. My mom or my dad or both of them. Often my grandparents were there, um, and the food wasn't really the important thing. My grandparents, you know, they lived the floor below us, and so my grandmother would cook a lot of Japanese food. My mom came to, from Japan when she was a teenager, and uh, growing up, she cooked some degree of Japanese food, but she was also kind of trying to uh, get us to assimilate a little bit more, you know? So she did a lot of sort of like Betty Crocker and like New York Times recipe, American-type stuff. She wasn't the greatest cook, but, but we had dinner every night. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Am I right? Do I remember correctly? Did you tell me once that you were a picky eater as a kid? Yeah, I was, I was a picky, I mean, up until I started cooking, you know, like even in college, I was a picky eater. My girlfriend, sophomore year, um, her parents took us out to dinner and we went to this restaurant in Boston, Radius, um, and they all ordered tasting menus. And I remember reading, like looking at the tasting menu being like, uh, that's got seafood. Oh no, this one has squash. Nah, I'm not going to. And so I, I got a steak while they got tasting menus. Yeah, you know, I got into food after I got into cooking. Like I first right. fell in love with the process of cooking and sort of working in kitchens. And it was through that that I learned about food. I do think it's it's worth noting, though. It's like, you know, for parents of picky eaters mm -hmm. who think that, like, if your kid is eight or 10 and isn't eating the uh, every world cuisine, that, like, there's something wrong with you and your parenting <laughs> or your child and, like... I could not bite into a raw tomato until I was 35. Okay, yeah. so, you know, just uh, just chill out, parents out there. Your kids will be fine, okay? <laughs> Me and Kenji made it, okay? I eat tomatoes, he eats squash. On, on the uh, other hand, so my, my daughter just turned five, and for her fifth birthday, she, um, we said, what do you want to do for dinner? Um, and she goes, I want to go to one of those restaurants where you just sit down and, and they don't tell you what they're going to bring and they just bring it. Like she's talking about a tasting menu. And I'm like, I feel like I failed at parenting, raising a five-year-old who wants a tasting menu. You, you were telling me backstage that uh, your sister shared a story recently of her earliest memory of you cooking. Yeah. What did you make? I was making pasta with tomato sauce. Um, but we ran out of tomato sauce, so I made pot. I found, like, the most tomato sauce-adjacent thing I could find in my mom's fridge, which was a jar of Newman's Own Salsa. And so it was, um, yeah, it was like Newman's Own Salsa cooked in olive oil with pasta. That was, I mean, I, that works. I'm, yeah, I'm, it worked. I'm sure it was fine. <laughs> Do you remember how it tasted? I, I remember thinking it tasted fine, or, or arguing to my sister that it tasted fine and that she should stop complaining. <laughs> So food wasn't a huge deal in your family. Cooking was not a big deal in your family growing up. But science was. Yeah. My maternal grandfather um, was a scientist uh, and my dad is a scientist. And so, yeah, there was a lot of science kind of talk at home all the time. 
What, what kinds of things were you talking about around the dinner table with your... I was ma- mainly complaining about having to do grant applications and... <laughs> And, and then sometimes, like the why is there a, why is there like a block of mice in the freezer? That kind of. <laughs> so in 1998, you go to MIT, planning to study biology. Mm-hmm. You get there and find that you love biology and science, but you hate working in biology labs. Yeah. Why? They're boring. Uh, <laughs> I enjoyed learning biology i learned i enjoyed lecture i learned i enjoyed all that it was just the actual physical process of lab work that i found boring there's like mind-numbing elements of it right where you're you're just like pipetting you know like this and then maybe maybe they have robots that do that now i don't know right um but uh no but i'm, I'm sure like there a, are still people a drop bored into of this vial a drop into right? that vial for like hours yeah right yeah. and it was one of those moments where i was like oh like if i if i keep doing biology this is going to be my life for a while. Yeah. So the summer after my sophomore year, I I kind of decided like, I need to figure out what I'm actually going to do. Uh, And in the meantime, I need to make money. Um, And so that's how I ended up cooking. You ended up cooking at a Mongolian barbecue place in Harvard Square. Yeah. I started out with a prep cook, but I was very quickly promoted to Night of the Round Grill. (laughs) Night of the Round Grill. So this was fire and ice, right? Uh I've been to this place. Yeah. I'm, I mean, like, I mean, I graduated from Tufts in 1999, mm-hmm. but stayed in the area for two more years. I may have eaten your cooking there. It's yeah, possible. It's, but, this is one of these sort of assembly line places. You would pick out meats and vegetables, and then you had to pick out one or, or sauces, hand it to a, a chef who would throw it on a. Uh, yeah, in, in a you, it was in a walker. Was on a, on a no. It was like a giant, giant griddle, a giant round, yeah, cast iron thing. thing. Yeah. yeah, I was flummoxed by the paradox of choice. There, it was too many sauces. Yeah, and then I always felt like, well, just one sauce would be boring. I should mix sauces, but like, which sauces to mix? And I don't know. And then I always had FOMO. I thought maybe I should have given a different sauce. It doesn't matter. It was. I mean, <laughs> it all tastes. It the all same. just mixes up on the grill anyway. Right. <laughs> right. You're probably getting a little bit of every sauce. I mean, it, no, I mean, people going there are not going there for the culinary experience. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, um, but but restaurant work is very similar. Whether it's at like a super high end place or uh, an Italian place or a burger place or a pizza place or whatever, like it, it's sort of mind numbing, but in a different way that biology is mind numbing. Um, when I became a cook, my mom hated it. Um, and I was like, but look, now I'm working at this like fancy restaurant. And she's like, oh, like you might as well be flipping burgers at the fast food place because like, you know, a, a cook is a cook. And at the time I sort of resented it, but it, but it is true. The, the job of a cook uh, is, well, difficult and underappreciated, but also, also sort of largely similar, right. even from like high end places to fast food places. And in the intro to the food lab, your first cookbook, you write, Like a head injury patient who suddenly develops a brand new personality, something snapped the moment my hand touched a knife in a professional kitchen. It didn't matter to me that I knew nothing about cooking and that my job mostly consisted of flipping asparagus spears. Mm -hmm. I knew right then that I'd discover what I was going to do with the rest of my life. What was it about that job? I mean, it, it was it was sort of the physical work of a kitchen, you know, because I've, I've um, I mean, I wouldn't write that now, you know. That was like, um, <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote that then. I think I was like channeling Jeffrey Steingarten or something, you know. Like I was, right. um, anyhow. I've always enjoyed building things with my hands, you know, like doing music or art, and you know, food was just like a very 
satisfying way to do that. I, I think I, I know now understand a little better about some of the complexities of food issues that I didn't think about back then. But at the time when I, when I was working as a cook, I was like, I, I, I'm at this job where I get to work with my hands and all I'm doing is like making people happy. You know, it's like they, they come in here, they want to have an experience, they want to enjoy it. It's obviously a little more complicated than that, but, um, but I, th I think that's really it, like the sort of transformation process. You say, as you say, you know, you played music all your life. I saw you, you said there was part of you that kind of wanted to be a rock star and working in a professional kitchen seemed like the next best thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also wouldn't write that now. But yeah. <laughs> what appealed to you about being a rock star then and what's changed? I mean, when I was younger, I definitely had much more of a, I want to be famous. I want to you know, do X, Y, Z, whatever I do, I want to be the best at it, you know, and, and these days now what's changed is I feel like I've, I've reached a point in my life where it's like, I can work harder at being better in some specific part of my career or whatever. Um, or like, I can be okay with the fact that I'm, I've been like very lucky and, 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 and successful at what I've done. And so I can, I, I have the luxury of being able to say, like, I want to spend more time with my family or I want to do this project for fun or for charity or for whatever, you know, whatever reason that is not just like trying to become more famous or more popular. So like, it, it feels like I, I can make that decision now. And why wouldn't I make that decision? Well, I mean, there's I a lot more? of people for whom it's never enough. Yeah. They're always the bad guys in the movie, right? Like they're... <laughs> They're the ones who die unhappy because, you know, well, you, don't, you don't hear many people say, like, I wish I spent less time with my kids. No, hundred percent. Right? You're, you're preaching to the choir. I, but but I, I don't think that it necessarily makes you the bad guy to be the type of person who is never satisfied. But I agree that it's sort of a not a great way to live. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's more just that I know that there's this like bit of my personality that can cause trouble, you know, like that that makes me unhappy. Um, and so I try not to feed that that part of my personality. The part of your personality yeah. that once wanted to be a rock star. Yeah, that once wanted to be like in front of a room full of people just listening, like hanging on to their every word. And <laughs> <laughs> you finally made it, Kenji. <laughs> um. <laughs> so... You, you get that summer job at Fire and Ice, the Mongolian barbecue. Yeah. You kind of get hooked on professional kitchens. Uh, you go back to school. You start reading cookbooks in your spare time. You Then you cook part-time in another chain restaurant called Rock Bottom. Mm -hmm. um, and you're getting more and more into cooking as you're going through MIT. Mm -hmm. You have all these questions about cooking because mm -hmm. you didn't grow up, you know, sort of like learning at your mother's side or whatever. Right. You sometimes hear with certain people's stories. You graduate from MIT. You set out with this attitude of like, you're going to spend your life trying to answer so many of the questions that you have as you're getting more into cooking. You, the scientific mind is sort of germinating and you have a lot of questions about why things are done a certain way. But, you, but in restaurants, you weren't finding the answers to these questions. It was very much like, this is how it's done. Just do it. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, that was the attitude like 20 years ago when I started working in restaurants. Um, and, and to some degree, I think it still is now. I think it's changed a lot. But at a restaurant, it's like, yeah, it doesn't exist to answer your question. It exists to like produce consistent food and to do it, you know, to, to do it the same way every time and and do it quickly. Right. But you, you wanted to understand like the science, the underpinnings of it. And, and you were also seeing things in restaurants that you felt like, I'm not sure if that's actually the best way. You know, I, I remember one job where uh, we were making French fries and, you know, we were doing the sort of traditional 
cut the potatoes, soak them, fry them once at a low temperature, fry them uh, again at a high temperature right before serving. You know, so I asked our chef, like, why do we, why, why do we do it that way? You know, because this was the first time I'd seen French fries cooked. And he's like, why do we fry it twice? He's like, uh, well, the first fry is to like cook it all. You do it at a low temperature. So you're just basically cooking it through to the center. And then the second fry makes it crispy. Um, and so I was like, well, if the first fry is just to cook it through to the center, like, can we boil them so that we don't have to like tie up the fryers or can we bake them? And, and he's like, no. And I was like, why not? He's like, that's just not how it's done. Um, and, and it turns out, you know, there are reasons why you don't do it that way, but... Um, why well, you yeah, don't do but, it the way you suggested. Why you don't do it the way I suggested, yeah. Right. But, it's, but it's still, like, I feel like you want to know those reasons, right? So your, your sort of frustration with not getting the kinds of answers you were curious about in restaurants leads you in 2006 to leave restaurants and go to work at Cook's Illustrated mm-hmm. as a test cook and editor, uh, hoping maybe that'll give you more of a chance to explore some of these food science questions you're curious about. And pretty quickly, it seems like it does. I mean, yeah. you, uh, you write a piece about how you want to solve pie crusts. You know, the dough is dry and crumbly. It makes it hard to roll it out. But if you add more water to make it more pliable, that also stimulates gluten development, which makes the finished product tough and not flaky. Right. So you come up with what I think of as your, like, first viral recipe concept. (laughs) Add vodka instead of water. Yeah. And it cooks off. And then you, so you get pliable dough to work with and flaky crust at the end. Yeah. Um, Amazing, right? Genius. A couple years later. Yeah. (laughs) Um, you leave Cooks Illustrated, you go to Serious Eats where you start the food lab, and that's really the thing that takes your career like, to the next level when you start to really be known as this food science guy. You're doing these kinds of deep investigations. Why do we do it this way? Is there a better way? Is there a better way to fry French fries? Tell me about the process behind those columns. So we pick a recipe, and then it's a lot of research into that. So the historical and cultural elements of a recipe, like it's really important to sort of know what meatballs means to different people. Because, you know, the last thing you want to do is work really hard at a recipe and publish it. And then, and then someone being like, uh, you know, I come from the land of meatballs and I can tell you this is not, re- you, you misunderstand what meatballs are. And then generally it's like, so you generally have to pick a problem that you're working on. Yeah, with pie crust, the problem is if you add too much water, it becomes tough. But if you don't have, add enough water, it cracks. So like, that's the problem I'm working on in this recipe. And so the food lab grows steadily in popularity over a period of years and you develop a real reputation as being this guy known for these sort of deep dive articles solving different dishes and i know that like for a lot of years you would your pieces were kind of framed not always but often as sort of the ultimate or best way to do it and you've been talking recently about how you sort of moved away from using those terms when you uh write a recipe why have you moved away from those terms (laughs) i mean it's partly so like right now you said like solving solving certain dishes like i've solved i've solved spaghetti like you know, it's, like, it's, it's probably because of like stuff like that like this idea that like there's definite right and wrong ways to do things and that one style is better than you know like a crispy hamburger is better than a soft hamburger by default you know like our, our formula at serious eats was like focus all our energy on producing the best possible content and that you know, if we do that consistently, people are going to get to know our name and they're going to come search for us and whatever. And so it doesn't matter what Google does with their algorithm, like in the long run, it'll, it'll work out this way. But, if, you know, but, but where that doesn't apply necessarily is the titles, you know? And so, you know, so, so there's always this pressure, like, okay, if we're writing about chocolate chip cookies and we did all this testing, like, 
better call it the best chocolate chip cookies because people are going to, if, if you see something that says the best chocolate chip cookies versus pretty good, you know, right. pretty or, good or chocolate chip cookies, chocolate depending chip on how you like them. Kenji likes quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't quite as grabby. Um, and so, you know, and so we use that kind of, um, that kind of wording right. frequently. Um, but, but it also meant that like, um, you know, what, what I, what I frequently found was cooking being used as like, like weaponizing it. And like, especially like an online communities, you know, you'd see people being like, that steak is terrible because it has, you know, you should let, you, you have to let it rest. I, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't feed that to my dog because he didn't let the steak rest. Or, you know, it's like all these things that, that people use to put other people down or, and, and sometimes you would see like, oh, like you didn't do this the way Kenji said. So it's bad. Like this is like objectively the best because the food lab says it's the best. Because it's like, Kenji says. Yeah. And that's stupid, right? It's, it's dumb. <laughs> I hear you, <laughs> but I do wonder, like at the time, like you were saying earlier, you know, there were when you were younger and uh, more full of hubris as we all were when we were younger. Yeah. <laughs> um, back then, at that time, was there part of you that kind of liked it when people would, oh, yeah, yeah, be like Kenji says, um, yeah, screw you, for sure, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was there was a part that liked it, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of these weird things where it's like you, you you know you use social media and you feel like and and it's really easy to forget that like the person on the other side is a person, you know. And then once like my voice started getting louder on social media, it's also very easy to forget that like what I say is like a hundred times louder than what the person saying back to me is saying. Uh, and so you know, reconciling the fact that like you're you just feel like a normal person but then also that you have this kind of megaphone yeah that's that's tough right totally and i i mean i i feel like i've had a similar arc to be honest because like you know the the sporkful when i first launched was mostly just me ranting about my opinions about the best way to eat things not to cook but to eat and we had some fun debates back in those early days right. when I was doing your eating it wrong on cooking channel and stuff. We would argue about hot dog buns and I don't even know what else we talked about. Yeah. Uh, your wife, Audrey, always said I was right, which is why I always right. liked her yeah. a lot. Um, she's obviously the brains in the family. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, you get a little older and you're like, oh, I don't really care. Yeah. So what changed for you? What, what triggered this, this shift? I mean, it was, it's been kind of an ongoing process, you know, uh, um, a lot of it is just my wife's influence, like, you know, like conversations with my wife, who's very honest with me about the stuff, um, conversation with my family. I'm certain, you know, certainly having kids made a big difference, you know, cause when you have a kid, it's like, you want to, you want to be the best example of yourself, right. And you want to do better. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, realizing that like Twitter makes me the worst version of myself, right. <laughs> It's like, so then why am I doing it? It helps my career. Like it helps sell books or whatever. Right. But it's like, is it worth it? You know, it's like, is it, is it worth it to put yourself in this position where you're constantly like trying to battle with a worse version of yourself? You know, you said that your audience is overwhelmingly male based on the demographics you can see on YouTube and elsewhere. I mean, it's not an exact science, but broadly speaking, why do you think these columns you were writing for the food lab, especially in this time, these best ultimate, et cetera. Why do you think your work appeals to this demographic? Like you, you want to talk about like systemic issues with society or like, (laughs) I mean, well, I I mean, (laughs) we can, if you want, we can, I, I guess, I guess it's interesting that you were saying earlier that 
the fact that you didn't grow up in a food-obsessed family, learning to right. cook as a kid, informed your approach to food, and, and, and that you feel like your work appealed to that demographic when you started doing food to other people who maybe didn't have that sort of institutional, cultural, family knowledge, mm -hmm. but wanted to know. And I think that makes sense, first of all. Men may be more, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm, maybe this is an unfair generalization. Men, men may be more likely to be in that category if they didn't think of themselves as wanting to care about cooking when they were a kid and then got into it later. I don't, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is that if you didn't grow up doing something and you think you're not good at it, you may feel insecure. And then when some guy comes along and says, here's the best way, <laughs> then that makes you feel tough. Part of it, I mean, no, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with sort of the way, so, okay, so part of it is sort of like the the gadget and science angle, and, and men are just generally more encouraged to care about those things, you know, for um, whatever reasons, um, and, and so that, you know, that, that kind of leans into that demographic, and then I think there's also a very real, like, the macho element, like the the best, the the ultimate, like we're we're testing the variables. And, you know, it's like you're you're writing about food like it's a a car, right? You know, uh, and so so that um, there, there's this kind of like bro culture it's, around. It comes like a pissing of, contest, yeah. You know, yeah, like exactly. I, I learned how to cook the best steak, you know, and his penis grew three sizes that day. Yeah, exactly, exactly that that kind right. of thing. So, um, you know, I think that's part of why um, the audience is what it is. But it's a thin line to walk because also like you do have real expertise that average readers don't have and they want from you. So they do want to know what's the best. Like, like the, the world of cooking, the internet can be overwhelming. If I Google how to cook a steak, yeah. I, mean, I would have a panic attack. So I just want someone who I trust to just give me the answer. <laughs> so I will I'll, often, when I have a question about how to do something, I will just add the word Kenji to my Google search. <laughs> Because I'm just like, well, I trust Kenji. And this way, I don't need to wade through a bunch of other stuff. I just will click on the first link. And, and that doesn't necessarily... for non-food articles? Too, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I'm just saying, like, like to be good at communicating right. food information and knowledge to people who know less than you do, you do need to make so, some choices for them. Yeah, well, okay, so there's different types of recipe users, right? There, there's some people who, who really just want... No nonsense. They just want the steps. They want to be able to like go to the supermarket, pick up the exact ingredients, come home and make the exact recipe. You know, it's like when you when you start learning more technique and the science behind the food and, and it, it allows you to realize like what parts of the recipes you can change. It really is much more like it's like here's a map. Here's where you are. Like this is where the recipe takes you. But like you can go any of these places you want. Coming up, Kenji opens a restaurant, and it does not go as planned. Plus, we hear about his new book and break down the science of cooking with a wok. Stick around. Hope you're hungry, because it's time for some ads. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best 
value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the choice hotels take care of all the other stuff too. But I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Recently, I went into my closet to try to get a collared shirt out, and it occurred to me that I don't think I have bought a new collared shirt in five years. I mean, (laughs) every shirt in there was either really old, or it had some kind of perma-stain situation, or it probably never fit right in the first place. I got to freshen up a little bit here. It's time for something new, right? And spring is coming. Now is the time if you've been looking to refresh your wardrobe, home, or skincare and beauty routines this season. Because you know, Walmart has genuinely surprising style finds that don't break the bank. This spring, there's only one destination for the latest fashion, home, and beauty inspired by real life. Walmart. I freshened up my wardrobe. I got some nice dress shirts, a couple light hoodies. You know, you need light hoodies for the springtime. Very useful, very comfortable. Discover surprisingly stylish new season favorites at Walmart now or shop it all on the Walmart app. Go to walmart.com slash now trending. That's walmart.com slash now trending. Now trending your style at Walmart. It's been chilly here in the Northeast lately, and we have been on a big grilled cheese dipped into tomato sauce kick here in the Pashman household. And I'm making the grilled cheese with Hero sliced bread. The kids like the Hero classic white bread. I like the Hero seeded bread. It's fluffy. The crust is just right. And I like that the slices are sliced just a little bit thicker than a lot of other sliced breads. You griddle it in butter. You add some cheese. You dip it in the soup. Phenomenal. And all the Hero breads are low in net carbs, and they're high in fiber. All these Hero Breads are delicious and flavorful. They'll give you that soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a refreshing BLT, savory breakfast burrito, or mouth-watering cheeseburger. So whether you're making homemade grilled cheese, BLT, maybe a tuna melt sounds nice on some Hero seeded bread. I bet that would be really good. Maybe you're doing sliders on the Hawaiian rolls. Whatever it is, Hero has the bread for you. Don't give up being a breadhead. And Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use code SPORKFUL at checkout. That's code SPORKFUL at H-E-R-O dot C-O. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's Sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Before we get back to our show in San Francisco, I want to make sure you heard last week's episode. It's a great conversation with writer Ayman Ismail. He's Muslim-American, and like many Muslims, he doesn't eat pork. The Quran forbids it. But as Ayman says, even many Muslims who aren't very observant still consider pork a major taboo. It's like that's the one line they won't cross. 
and he wonders why that rule is such a big part of Muslim identity. A lot of my relationship to Islam early on, at least, was very much, okay, you're Muslim, so you don't drink alcohol, and you're not going to have a girlfriend, and you're not going to have sex before you're married, and you're going to just do all these Muslim things, but really, how you express and practice your religion is all the things that you don't do. So when a new loophole vegan pork product hits the market, what will Eamon do? And how will it change how he thinks about being Muslim? Check out that episode. It's called Is Halal Pork Impossible? It's in your feed right now where you got this one. Okay, we now take you back to Swedish American Hall in San Francisco for our live show with Kenji lopez All. So off the success of your Food Lab column on Serious Eats, you released the Food Lab Cookbook, your first cookbook in 2015, which takes a similar approach as the column. It includes recipes and techniques for everything from chili con carne to French onion soup to meatloaf. Um, it gets rave reviews, wins numerous awards, including the James Beard Award for Best General Cookbook. It's a huge hit. To date, it's sold more than half a million copies. Congratulations. <laughs> And then you decide to open a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> Worst Hall in San Mateo, just a little south of San Francisco where we are tonight. Yeah. Now, now it's, it's ostensibly a German-style beer hall with all kinds of sausages, but you incorporate a wider range of flavors. Yeah. You have merguez, yeah. <laughs> Cajun sausages, Korean fried chicken sandwich. Now, you, you said originally you weren't supposed to be super involved in the restaurant. You were going to like contribute a few recipes. Yeah. And then you shared something yeah. on social media like, hey, I'm going to be working on this restaurant. And food media kind of picked it up and went berserk and said, Kenji's opening a restaurant. Suddenly it became Kenji's restaurant. Yeah. And that kind of changed your role. Well, yeah. Initially, um, I was going to be a consultant. Yeah. And then it just became this like, oh, Kenji's opening a restaurant. And I... Um, wrongly i felt oh shit like people are going to judge me on this thing now i better do it well um, why is that wrong um because ultimately i don't i shouldn't have let it control my life like i i had a you know i had a young daughter at the time and i started out as a full-time stay-at-home dad and like i picked up this restaurant thing as sort of like a okay like she sleeps during the day sometimes like i'll i'll work on this thing for a little bit that was sort of my plan initially, but then once it became a serious thing, it became like, okay, now like I'm going to the restaurant every night after her bedtime. You know, it's like uh, I'll work at the restaurant part time during the day while she's at daycare, and then I'll come home do bedtime, and then I go to the restaurant from like you know 8 p.m. till 1 a.m. Uh, ultimately, it wasn't worth it to me. Like a lot of your fans and followers, I was following the process of the development of the restaurant on your uh -huh. Instagram and there would be pictures. Oh, the, the beer taps were installed today. Or here's this chicken sandwich we're testing. It's going to be great. And I was, you know, excited to see what you were sharing. Um, and then one day you wrote in all caps, opening a restaurant is insane. And I don't know why anyone in their right mind would choose to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was happening that day? Uh, I think most likely what happened that day was... Our first night of soft opening, I think we had 80 people in there that night, fixed menu. And, you know, we had tested out the kitchen and like everything was going fine in the line, like all the beer is pouring fine. Um, what we didn't test was whether the bathrooms can handle 80 guests. And so the bathroom, like there's like an old cast iron pipe that was sagging that broke in the wall and um, and flooded into the foundation. And, we, and so these brand new bathrooms that we had just had installed, like we had to get them completely torn out and, 
excavated and a delayed opening by six weeks. And yeah. Yeah. Just, anyhow, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that happens. Right. And, right. Um, and why you shouldn't open a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it sounds like that was like, that was a rough time. I mean, like how, how bad does it get? How Got bad really bad. Was, was, was there like a rock bottom? What was? Yeah, I mean, it affected my family life. It affected my marriage. It was, it was just, um, it really was one of those things like thinking like, when I'm like 80 years old, um, am I going to think to myself, I wish, I wonder if I could have opened a restaurant. Or I wonder if I could have started a successful restaurant and am I going to regret this? Like saying no to this right now because it's like opportunities just like kind of falling on me. So I was like, yeah, I should, I should probably do this for the experience of it. Um, and so I am glad I did it for the experience of it. And I would recommend that other people don't go through the experience of it. <laughs> so you left the restaurant in 2020. Mm-hmm. You no longer have any stake in it. Did you end up making any money off it? No. Uh, I, I, eight cents. I, and, you know, that, that, was, that was the only paycheck I ever got. Um, so all the work you did, like all the menu developing and all those hours, eight cents. So I, I had, like, my, my management shares. I, I returned them to the pool, and um, they had to pay me, I think, a, at least a penny per share for some kind of legal reason. Okay. So, um, yeah, so I get eight cents out of that. So you can confirm it's not a great business to be in, is what you're telling me. Yeah, if you want to make money, no. Yeah. If, you, if you want to make the money, if you want to have, like, a good work-life balance, right. if, you, you know, if you want and, um, any of the joys of life, then no, it's not. Right. It's not a, <laughs> Being a best-selling cookbook author is better. Yes, <laughs> sure. Speaking of which, these days you're no longer writing the Food Lab column. You're writing occasional columns for the New York Times, which are similar in some ways to the Food Lab. They tend to involve a lot of research and testing to come up with a recipe. But a lot of your time is also spent on your YouTube channel, where you recently hit a million subscribers. Congrats. And in your... Yep. And in your videos, you mostly just strap a GoPro camera on your forehead and cook something. Yeah. It's not really edited. Uh, we watch your hands at work. We don't really see you. Uh, and you narrate as you go. It's sort of very improvisational. It's kind of based on whatever you happen to have in the kitchen or in the pantry and whatever you feel like cooking. So in that sense, it feels very different from the food lab and the cookbooks. And it's almost the polar opposite. Is, um, that, is that by design? The whole show is not by design. Like, it's just uh, I started doing it because there was a GoPro in front of me one day while I was about to cook. Uh, uh, and I only do it now because it like it doesn't interrupt my life. Uh, like my, my my criteria for when I'm shooting a video for that is, it's it's it has to be something that I was going to cook anyway, um, and it has to be something I'm cooking when there's nobody else in my family in the kitchen. If those two criteria are met and uh, the camera battery is charged, then I'll probably shoot it. Right. So you've got your YouTube channel; it's going very well. And now we have the new book, mm-hmm. The Walk: Recipes mm-hmm. and Techniques. Yeah. Now, Kenji, I know you to be a lover of puns. Yeah. <laughs> you acknowledge in a footnote in the book yeah. that walk is a very punnable word. But you didn't really go through all the potential puns you could have gotten for oh, the, t- the okay, title. Well, I, I don't know that I have them all, but the Sporkful team and I, we were just brainstorming <laughs> a little bit. You could have gone with everybody's walking. Yeah. yeah. Walk tall. Yeah. We will walk you. I think I did do We Will Walk Maybe, yeah. There, yeah. Um, yeah. Something to walk about. Okay. Yeah. Walk around the block. Walk around the clock. <laughs> Chip off the old walk. Yeah. Walk Honda forever. <laughs> <laughs> Walking for the weekend. Uh-huh. And my personal favorite, which I think was on your list, which I legit think would be a great cookbook title, 
walk this way. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and yet you went with the walk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you started writing a sequel to The Food Lab and you were writing a walk chapter that ended up ballooning and you said, this is just going to be my next book. Yeah. And you make a case that it's the, the walk is the most versatile pan in the kitchen, good for stir frying, deep frying, smoking, braising, and more. Mm-hmm. You break down the science of wok cooking. I love this part of the book. I also love that you cited a study from David Hu, professor of fluid dynamics at Georgia Institute of Technology, who mm-hmm. we've had on the Sporkful. For, uh, oh, you had him on? Yes, he okay. broke down noodle slurping. Oh, I think about right. him every time I have noodles because he explained how as you slurp a noodle, as it comes towards your mouth and more of it goes into your mouth, the noodle outside of your mouth is getting shorter and shorter yeah. and therefore lighter and lighter. So it goes faster So it fishtails back and forth uh, more and more and increases the splatterability factor. Yeah. That's my term, not his. Anyway, um, <laughs> you cite other studies as well that basically explain how when you cook with a wok, so you're using its sloped sides to toss the food up in the air in sort of right. parabolic circles. Yeah. And... You say that it's the tossing of the food through the air that makes it cook so quickly, mm-hmm. which is the opposite of what I would have guessed. I would have guessed that food flying through the air, it's like blowing on the food. Like, doesn't that cool it down? Uh, so, yeah, to some degree. But, but what you're really doing is you're encouraging evaporation. And so in the, in the same sense that, like, you know, when you're sweaty, right, blowing a fan at you is going to cool you off faster um, and it's going to get rid of moisture faster. So, like, a lot of the energy that goes into cooking food um, goes into the evaporation of moisture. You know, in certain cases, so if you're working with like a, you know, with a gas burner, the motion of tossing it, you kind of create this column of hot air that rises up the back of, of the wok from the fuel source and jumps up the back of the wok. Um, and so you're also kind of tossing your food through that column of hot air. Um, so you have, you're essentially, you're, yeah, you end up cooking it faster by virtue of the fact that you're helping moisture evaporate faster. You realize this book is going to start a walk craze, right? <laughs> like you, you, you may be starting a whole new trend. I hope so. I don't know. <laughs> so it seems from the photos that I see on Instagram that unlike you, your kids are growing up in a food obsessed house. <laughs> is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. How would you say that food in your home now is different from food when you were growing up? Like the role food plays in your home today versus the role of food in your home when you were a kid. For us, meal times when we were kids were so on rare occasions they were like joy, right? It was like I get to eat like mapo tofu and and dumplings, right? And those meals are great. But but my mom was one of those types of moms that that whatever was on our plate, we finished it. Uh, and so sometimes you know meal times were a chore, right? It's like you're forced to sit here until like my 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 sister. Um, my, my younger sister was the worst, like where she would sometimes takes like three hours to eat a meal. Like there was, remember a, um, there was a Saturday morning where my mom made oatmeal and my sister hates oatmeal. Um, and she was sitting at the breakfast table for like two hours. Like we were already done watching cartoons. Um, and she took a bite and then like, like regurgitated it back out into her bowl. And then my mom made her eat it. Oh man. (laughs) Um, so that was our relationship to food. (laughs) Um, no, I mean, our, our approach to food, uh, uh, you know, with our kids is, is much more, um, ca- you know, like I, I like to let them, let them feel empowered at the tables. So my daughter comes shopping with me and says like, I, like, I want this duck. I want that chard or whatever. And, you know, and then we'll come home and figure out what we're going to do with it. 
And then um, she cooks with you. She cooks with me, yeah, most Sometimes. nights. But most nights, like she, if if she doesn't finish her music time, like her violin practice before I start cooking dinner, then she has to practice violin through. So that's like, so not not getting to cook is like is like punishment for her. Like she feels she feels it when she can't cook. She likes to cook, but then sometimes she doesn't eat. You know, like sometimes she won't eat what she cooks, um, which is fine. You said that when you decided to become a chef, your mom was like, I don't care if it's a high-end restaurant, you might as well be flipping burgers. Yeah. <laughs> what does she think now? So, okay, so I have a New York Times column, and, like, that makes her happy, you know? Um, <laughs> but other than that, you know, it's like, she would rather have a doctor, of course. You know? <laughs> and what will you do if, uh, if one of your kids comes to you in 20 years and says they want to be a chef? Oh, I'm, 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 you know, I, I, I support my kids with whatever they want. It's like, uh, I, I want them to, um, I feel like my role is to give them the, the, the moral backbone and then, you know, they, they can do whatever they want with that. Right. Just don't open a restaurant. I, I might give them advice about opening a restaurant. Yeah. But, um, you know, but if there, I mean, yeah, there are people who love that, you know, I just found out I'm not one of them, but, but uh, there are people who love it. And if you love it, do it. Well, the new cookbook is out now. It's called The Walk, Recipes and Techniques. It's available wherever books are sold. Big hand for my friend Kenji Lopez-Alt. Thank you to Swedish American Hall. Thank you to all of you for coming out to see our first live show in two and a half years. Thank you so much. Good night. Thank you again to everyone who came out to our live show. It was great to see all of you. Thanks to Swedish American Hall, and thanks to Kenji. His new book, The Walk, is really fantastic. I already learned so much reading it. Can't wait to start cooking some of those recipes. Next week on the show, one family's complicated relationship with Jell-O. In recent years, one of the heirs to the Jell-O fortune has become obsessed with the product and how all that money shaped America and her own family, to the point that some of them started to wonder, are we cursed? That's next week. While you wait for that one, check out last week's episode called Is Halal Pork Impossible? Thanks. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producers Andres O'Hara and Johanna Mayer. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. The show is mixed by Amita Ganatra. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Daisy Rosario. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Ben Perkins from Petaluma, California, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.